Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined once again by Brian Gottlieb. Took a little week off last week, had some travel woes, and now you are coming to us from New Zealand. What's up, mate? Oh, God. No. That's, that's, I, the, I, word. See, that's the word I picked up. I was going to ask if at some point you're going to develop an accent. Now, I don't think accents ever ruin anything, right? It's just like net positive. Agreed. Love accents. But you already have a very good podcasting voice. Yeah, but I don't know. Some of my like favorite voices to listen to have have like an accent. I find it very like aesthetically pleasing, particularly soothing in a lot of instances. So right. I think if I develop a New Zealand accent, it's not the end of the world. I think it'll only improve my podcasting voice. It's it's not the end of the world. Like I said, I don't think they ruin anything. The only thing is like I like how you are now. Mm, I appreciate you know? that. Yeah, that means a lot to me. Yeah, I mean, obviously improvements could be made on anything. I just, I don't know if it's your voice, though. You know, your voice is really good. Hmm. Okay. I'll keep that in mind as I uh, slowly work new New Zealand words into my vernacular. And uh, maybe I'll try and add some, like, of my original flair to them. Like, I won't pick up the New Zealand pronunciation. I'll just mispronounce them like I do all the English words. So. Yes. And magic cards. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Kiwis. Mm. The the New Zealand people are referred to as Kiwis, yes? yes? Yes. Okay. And this is this is not like a derogatory term. This is a thing that they call themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely hear them reference themselves as that. If it is derogatory, not my intention whatsoever. I'm just trying to, you know, repeat what I've heard them use. Okay. I'm just trying to get some things clear. Yep. The land down under is Australia, but does New Zealand count as that? I, one thing I am quickly learning about New Zealanders is that they really like to uh, separate their identity from Australia. Like that is, I think that's important to them that they not be lumped in with Australia. So obviously, like New Zealand on the same side of the globe, I, I don't think they are referred to as the land down under. Well, so Australia is the land down under, but is New Zealand down under? You know what I mean? Like it's not the land, but it's like in the same general vicinity as the down under area. It, it is. Again, I I haven't completed my citizenship test yet, so I don't I don't think Word. I'm qualified to answer this. Okay, I I've been like very close to just kind of like shorthand referring to like Brian as being down under or whatever mm. because it's it's like pretty easy to do. And then I was like, wait, no, I gotta make sure that I'm not messing this up, you know, because I don't want anyone to read into that like, oh, you said he's in Australia or whatever, when I clearly know that that's not the case. Yeah, I, I think it would be read that way. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I know. I know. I know. So, some experts, I, I know we have fans uh, in both Australia and New Zealand. They can weigh in for us and let us know exactly uh, how we're supposed to define down under. And I, I know that they're different, right? And I know that they are separate places, both with pros and cons and everything. I, I'm just saying that like down under could be a bigger area than just mm. Australia. I don't know. But. I think like the whole, I, I mean, I don't know. This goes into like globe theory, but obviously there's like some problem with referring to things as down under when the globe is <laughs> right. a sphere, right? Like we've, we've set it up in a very clear, like this is on top, this is on bottom way. So, or, you know, when you believe the earth is flat, then it just gets really weird. Look, I don't, I don't even know how to communicate with those people. So I'll, I'll <laughs> let them live in their own world. Oh, uh, I, I have such a good flat earth story. Well, now you have to share it. There's no way you get away with this one. All right. So Michael Majors and Tom Ross are flat earthers. Yes. Everyone knows that. <laughs> Not quite. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're funny dudes with their own sense of humor and 
for a while, you know, living in Roanoke and then also in Seattle. They were palling around a lot. We're drinking buddies, would go play NBA Jam together, like go to arcades and like shoot hoops together and stuff. Like not actual basketball, but like the random arcade basketball games. Mm-hmm. And just like created their their own sayings and phrases and adopted each other's and whatnot. And one of them just became like, you know, sky blue, grass green. Mm-hmm for like, you know, this is obvious or whatever. And then somehow I think it, I think it was Tom Ross uh, added earth flat. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah, Very. Smooth. Uh, so it added another layer of complexity to it. So then I think at SCG con when there was the snowstorm and mm-hmm. we all got locked in, in the lobby for like an extra day or whatever, he, he may have like casually mentioned this and Tappy Toe Claws, who is a, like a legit scientist, <laughs> was just like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> just just in fear? And, d- no, just like, excuse me, what did you say? Hmm. And he's just like, sky blue, grass green, earth flat. It just kind of went from there. It, it led to her at like 3 a.m. just being like, okay, look, dude. And just explaining the science behind why the earth is not flat on cardboard wall because they made a pizza fort. We're inside the pizza fort. And she's just drew, doing like diagrams and drawings on the walls of pizza boxes with a Sharpie for hours. <laughs> that and, is and a, Tom, a Tom fine just sat there and took it all. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. That's the only response and, you can do at that point. Right. It's like, do you don't, you don't know what you signed up for, but you're here now. Mm-hmm. And as soon as uh, Tappy busted out the Sharpie, I was just like, I'm out of here. <laughs> I, got, I, I did not sign up for this class. Like, you saw where things were going. Yeah, good yeah. read. So sky blue, grass green, earth flat, etc. Yes. Uh, what else? Uh, okay, no accent. No. Ki- Kiwis are good. No down yeah. under. Yeah, uh, so. y- You're there to work on Flesh and Blood. Yeah. Yeah, I've been uh, grinding out some some future stuff for Flesh and Blood, which will obviously remain tightly under wraps. But I am uh, very excited for everyone to experience it twenty years from now. It's going to yeah. be awesome. That this, is this what is it's the first like time in game design. Yeah, so like obviously, like I worked on Neon Dynasty, and something about like I was only involved in the process very late, and like more of like a QA checker. I would say is is more akin to my role, but I, I'm I'm very deep in this one. The weight is going to be excruciating, and I, I can already feel it. <laughs> it's it's a lot because you're you're in design, like actual hardcore, like starting from scratch design, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, that is and what I'm doing over here. It just determines so much for what a set is going to look like, and you can look at any magic set and and be like, well, you know, the devs messed up like this, like here and there, like these little minute details or whatever. But I think, especially for the last years, it's like, wow, design has really been on point. Like this, this world is great. The set feels very evocative of that sort of thing and those themes and everything. And I think that people are really enjoying that aspect. I agree. And yeah. yeah, thankfully magic has not had many points where you just like look at the set and it's like, like the devs consult this. It was a design problem, right? But like, you know that everything starts there. Yeah, definitely the foundational point. And, uh, you know, now working with the devs very closely who are incredible. Like Basically, everyone in New Zealand is credible, incredible, just doing an awesome job of like making me feel extremely included, extremely welcome, extremely comfortable, you know, working around my 
still weird sleep schedule. Uh, <laughs> it is it is five a.m. as we record this right now in New Zealand. Okay. So it, it's just been a really awesome experience, and I I hope the only like cherry you could put on top is that what we eventually produce, everyone just loves. Like that's that's the most important thing. So hopefully that is the case twenty years from now. I have faith, man. I think that you'll uh, yeah, do a good I, I do job, too. and I, I have too. faith in the team too. So I do too. Things are going very well thus far. So people, sh- people who love flesh and blood, should be excited for the future. Awesome. And I don't, I don't know what the time frame is—like a year and a half, two years, something like that. It's going to feel like an eternity, I'm sure. But yep, yes, it is. We'll get there. Yep. It'll. It, I. It, it's funny. Like as I get older, uh, things come upon me sooner than I expect. Like I, I just like turn around and I'm like oh, this felt like it was going to be forever. And then these things I'm waiting for are here. So I, I expect this will probably follow suit. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Life life comes at you quick. It all determined, it's all determined by how, how, how flat the occupied, earth is, right? Yeah, yeah, how flat the earth is, of course. But just like how occupied your time is, right? True. And it, it has been very occupied recently. So yeah. <laughs> I'm sure yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of doing like a, a crunch thing, basically. Like you're working a lot. And yeah, you yeah. Like it, but. Yeah, no, I I do, I do love it. Definitely putting in a lot of hours, but it, it's funny. It's not like you'll work until this is done. It is all right. I do my work for the day, and then I like go do something else. And next thing I know, there's an idea in my head, and I'm like, "Well, man, I really want to follow this idea through." And then it's six hours later, and it's just, it's just like yeah. you know chasing down one thread. So uh, it's it's both like the curse of and the benefit of doing something you love. But I I think fellow ADHD people know how like the interest spikes go where you're passionate about something. For me, I find it's best to just lean into it. And yeah. then after that, I'll, you know, I'll do the self-care thing. I'll make sure I, I, I put some, some time to just refresh, recharge my batteries. I, I'd rather really, I'd rather work in sprints than just like this monotonous slog of eight hour days, you know? No, that's completely fair. And I mean, if, if you, as an ADHD person just kind of like trip and fall into a flow state. <laughs> yeah. You got to go with it. Yeah. Because I mean, at some point there will be like a, a week stretch where I'm like, I can't do anything. I'm worthless. And right. like, I may as well get ahead of it now, you know? Mm, yours only lasts a week, huh? Hopefully that that's, that's being an optimist. Mine, mine kind of lasts decades. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I had a few decade ones and you know, yeah. since then they've tend to flow more, I would, I would say months is the more applicable time cycle most of the time, but we'll see. We'll see what we do this go around. Yeah. Uh, dude, I'm, I'm stoked and I'm, I'm happy that regardless of the outcome, although I do think the outcome is going to be good, that you are getting to work on something you love, you know, yeah. like that is, that is just kind of the dream and yeah, maybe took a few more hours on an airplane than you would like to be able to get to do that. There's, but, there's you know. a direct flight from New York starting in September. And if you had told me at the start of this year, like a huge quality of life buff for me was going to be when there's a direct flight from New York to New Zealand. I, I really wouldn't have understood what you were talking about. But That's pretty incredible, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a huge different maker. My, my flight back, which I leave a, about a week from today, has four stops, Fiji, San Francisco, LAX, then back to New York. You you have to go from SF to LAX, really? Yep. Come yes, on. I do. Come on. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It, it was like actually challenging to find a flight out of New Zealand. I don't know if New Zealanders are just traveling a bunch or, you know, it, it's kind of, it's winter here right now, although 
I would take this winter. This this is like uh like good Seattle weather basically. Like yeah. rain at night, but basically seventy degrees during the day. So uh I, I would take this winter very happily. Dude, that's perfect. That's yeah, but but I, I think New Zealand. It's hoodie is weather, very, man. Let's go. I, exactly. I've I've worn a hoodie every day since I've been here. But yeah, I think probably more New Zealanders leaving and it was it was tough just to, to get out basically. So to take what you can get. Yeah, I mean, hopefully with them having a direct flight to New York, then it's also not impossible to get back because, I don't know. Should be should, should should just be able to hop on the same flight, theoretically. I mean, uh, we'll see how popular the flight is and how hard it is to get a seat. But Yeah, I would hope so. It's just like, I don't know if New York is going to run to New Zealand and back or if it's like, well, we put the plane in New Zealand so that we can then go to like Fiji, SF. Yeah, I, I actually don't know that. that. That's a fair point. My assumption is that it goes both ways. Yeah, I, I think it does because I, I know the folks here are excited about it as well. So that, that okay. makes sense. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I got to imagine it's like a pretty good vacation spot or whatever. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I I think like, uh, so I've mostly just been in the city proper. Obviously, like I lean towards nature, but I've also spent a bunch of time living in cities and I, I appreciate a good city. Uh, and Auckland seems like a very cool city. There's, there's a lot of good stuff here. Uh, definitely like reminds me a lot of Los Angeles in a lot of ways, like very sprawling, the like you know, the high rise section is pretty self-contained, like really, really cool places, really good vibes all over the place. So I, I've been impressed. Things I did in New Zealand that you may or may not be interested in. And granted, mm-hmm. this was like 14 years ago. Yeah. Visited black sand beaches. I definitely want to do that at some point. Cool as hell. Yeah. Uh, other thing was uh, bungee jumped off a bridge. Yeah, so so uh, we were actually talking about this the other day. Bungee jumping was invented in New Zealand, I guess. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's it's like a big thing here, and then they do the the bungee jump off the bridge. There's a spot in Auckland where they also do bungee jumping off the bridge. Did you do it? Were you in Auckland or are you elsewhere? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's where I was. Yeah, it was probably the bridge we were talking about. Yeah, and it's it's named after the creator of the bungee jump. Oh, okay. Yeah, I maybe they told us that and I didn't remember it. I feel like that's because you were terrified about to jump off a bridge. That would make sense. Uh, no, it was Luis who was the one who was terrified. Okay, I, I would be terrified. You you weren't terrified to jump off the bridge. Nah, just like, like a, a lot of faith in your safety equipment, right? No, it's just like what's what's the worst that happens? I die. Okay. <laughs> okay. When you put it that way, I, I guess that's fair. Then um, then then what? I'm just asleep. Yeah. Yeah, good nap. Yeah, that's, I don't that's know. Good it, it was it. it was me, Paul Chion, and Luis Scott Vargas, and we were all like, "This sounds fun. It's probably going to be terrifying." And then they have to bring you to the place, teach you some stuff, get mm-hmm. your gear on, and then they have to walk you through like the undercarriage of the bridge. Okay, because obviously you're not jumping from like where the cars are. Yeah, right? of course. And also, it has to be the undercarriage so that like if for some reason, you snap back up super hard. You don't hit the undercarriage. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, then we're like, <laughs> I don't know, just like climbing through the undercarriage of the bridge where there's, you know, like walkways and stuff. But it's like humans are not really supposed to be here, it feels like. Yeah. Um, but then we get to the place and it's like it's all set up. It looks good. There's all these people. And I don't, I don't remember who went first or whatever, but obviously like the the fear and anxiety was creeping up on us. Like the closer we got. And then it's just like, you get to the edge and you look down. It's like, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's that scary. Might as well. do it to me. Yeah. 
and just like as Luis got closer to the edge, I could just see him like backing off more and more. We both had to like kind of like nudge him and be like, come on, dude, like we're here. Let's do this. Right. Yeah. And it, it was fun. It was awesome. Absolutely awesome. Now, the actual process of like doing the bungee jump, you just jump, right? Like there's no, is there anything you actually have to do while you're flying through the air? Uh, no, it's yeah. like they, they could, they could just like nudge you off the side and everything would work out. Okay. Yep. Uh, that's my expectation. And it's like, you go down really fast. You kind of spring back up a couple times. They, they reel you back up. Everything's good. So it's just yeah. like that, that split second of falling is the, the entire experience. Yeah. I, I don't love heights. I, I wouldn't say I go to like complete fear. I, I can sometimes do things like on a ladder but I, I don't love it. So I don't know what my response would be to bungee jumping. It was funny when I went to Costa Rica to play the GP, you know, we explored a bunch and I was with my wife and my brother and we were like, we went four hours outside of the city proper to go to Manuel Antonio National Park, which is an incredible place. I really recommend everyone go there. But uh, we did like a zip lining course when we were there. And we're I've, all like, I've been ziplining. That's that's super fun too. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it was, but we're all like getting up and we're getting our zipline gear. And I'm like, man, I fucking hate heights. Why did I do this? And then my brother's <laughs> like, I also hate heights. And Janelle's like, yeah, heights are terrible. And we're all just standing <laughs> on top of these platforms. And none of us had any idea why we signed up for it. Ultimately, did have a good time though. It, it was fun. Good. But yeah, it was, it was just like the moments where you're standing on the platforms because the platforms in Costa Rica, we were just like on. They were just like nailed into giant trees. And they're like, by the way, don't touch the trees. This is where the bullet ants live. And the bullet ant, if you don't know, is like the most painful sting in the entire animal kingdom. Okay. Uh, like like a crippling bite if they bite you. I did not um, know that. Yep. So so you didn't touch the trees and you're just kind of like standing on these rickety platforms. And, and that was really the scarier moment than like the zip lining. Hmm. I don't remember the specifics of the time that I went but I don't feel like there were a ton of heights involved. It was mostly like you hike up to the top of this mountain or wherever the hell we were. I don't even remember where we were. And then you just like one, one ride down. No, it's, it's just like you go kind of like from peak to peak, sort of like slowly down the hill, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We were going like platform to platform where the platforms were built into trees. Yeah. That's less ideal. I think if you're certainly if you're scared of heights. Yes. Yes, it was. Word. All right. So as as you may or may not know, there is a Magic Arena PTQ this week that is Explorer. So you tell me that and that is why I know. And I am qualified because I was able to camp on my mythic limited rating. We pretty exciting uh, and also very timely because as you may have guessed, given the 20 minutes of story we just told I don't really know what's going on in Magic. I don't see any reason to lie to anyone. I've been very focused elsewhere. But I think, I think because you are so dedicated right now, just just playing a bunch, learning a bunch, I think we could still put on a really good show and you can kind of teach me, bring me up to speed. So when you eventually take down this qualifier weekend, uh, you know, I, I, I know exactly why you succeeded. Well, I'm going to be honest, for the last week or so, I've been playing Marvel Snap. Oh, okay. So we're both terrible. <laughs> no, uh, I... It hasn't been 24-7, thankfully. I mean, I I have woven in some time to talk about and play and think about Magic, and Josh Joe has been keeping me occupied because... Uh, also he, qualified, right? 
he he is qualified now because he seven owed whatever XO is uh, an LCQ last weekend, the best. Award. Nice. Nice. So we had been talking about Dex and like trying to get him prepped and ready and everything. And I think that is going well so far. Even remember when we did like the Shadow versus Omnath, like post Luris ban. Yep. Like yep. those those sessions are really good and really fun. And I learn a lot. Right. Just like playing two matchups, trying to figure out, you know, how to either construct your deck or like build a sideboard or how to sideboard and stuff like that. And Josh and I carved out some time and he was like, look, like this, this deck is really good in, in best of ones, but I don't like it against this other deck. Like, and I I was just like, well, okay, you know, I'm going to look at a bunch of lists. So I did a bunch of research, looked at what other people were doing, thought about the matchup, just kind of like holistically, this is with me playing zero sides of Mm -hmm. both matchups. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've played the decks historically, right. But not these current iterations, like in Explorer or whatever. And just being like, I'm pretty sure knowing what I know, this sort of plan is is going to be your best bet. Like it's these eight cards, blah, 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 whatever. And we we test the matchup. I'm playing the side that he is not favored against. And he just mopped the floor with me. Nice. So and it was just like all, all the cards like came into play and like did work. And I was just like, yep, still got it. Like I can very clearly eyeball some of these things as long as I have frames of reference, which I did. So I uh, got to got to sit down and actually figure out that matchup, which was his main concern for like playing the best of three qualifier thing. And I think that went well. I mean, now now there are like doubts creeping in. I think whenever you are testing for a tournament and especially when the tournament is like three weeks out, when you start testing is like you figure out something that you like. But as time goes on, you start to notice kind of like the little things that Maybe you wouldn't have Absolutely. noticed if you only had four days. Yep. And there's also this whole weird thing about just arena and sort of explorer in general, and also who's playing in PTQs. And, and we've talked about this before, where it's like the latter metagame never really resembles what the PTQ field is. Maybe for day two, but it's not true on day one. Like day one PTQs, I have traditionally just played against the most random stuff which can be to your benefit, but absolutely can be to your detriment too, depending on... This feels like it should be... It should be especially true in the Explorer format where it's kind of new. There's not really a set metagame. And I I don't think it's... It's not going to be most people who are qualified for this event. It's not going to be their primary way of playing arena is my guess. So that means, you know, you have to kind of put together a deck on the fly that maybe you don't have some of the pieces for. So you got to start asking the question, what's cheap? What What is low wild card <laughs> investment? Like, I, I think that will be a large portion of the metagame you should. I mean, maybe it doesn't make the best deck or the most played deck, but it makes the deck that you have very, very increased odds of facing. Yeah. And, and that's where Josh and I started with his collection, because prior to streets, he was brand new to arena. So right. streets got him a ton of wild cards because he he just played he's playing limited yeah he played limited Look, and there's no question when you're cr- yeah when you're crushing limited there's no question like our arena gets pretty cheap it, it, you can you can definitely finance a good collection on the back of being a good limited player no doubt and the frustrating thing about it was from the the no limited side of things like i know how precious all the wild cards are right and he had mm-hmm. i think like 120 rares and 40 or 50 mythics or something 
And so he's like, well, I'll just build this and build this. And I'm like, please, yeah, slow down. Like, please save those. Slow down. And it, it works sometimes, but it doesn't work all the time, especially when we're not on Discord together. He's mm. just like, well, I crafted this deck, you know, 30 rares down the drain or whatever. Yep. So we started with Rakdos Sacrifice because it was relatively cheap. And he already wanted some constructed deck to, to jam on ladder for like wins and quests and stuff like that. So he had already built like Rectos for standard. So he had like pathways and whatnot. Uh, so then porting it then to Explorer was not that bad. Cause like a lot of the key cards are just commons and uncommons like cat yep. oven, mayhem devil, etc. But yep. the mana base now is, I mean, you, they actually give you like pathways, like one of each pathway to start in the intro decks, which I, I like a lot. Oh, I think cool. is a great yeah. idea. Yep. And then it was like, well, get some blood crypts. But then a lot of the, the rest of the mana bases are like, well, you play, you know, some Den of the Bugbears, a Hive of the Eye Tyrant, a Takanuma, and a Sakenzin. And just like, all right, dude, like, don't craft Sakenzin, Takanuma. Like, you, you just don't need them. They are value adds. And just skimp and save on the wild cards wherever you can, you know? Yeah, um, I, I guess when you're, when you're trying to do like this quasi free to play mode, like, get your baseline and then figure out exactly what you need to play the tournaments that matter. And that's when you invest your wild cards. Right. Yeah. I mean, part of it was him just trying to figure out a deck and, and get reps with it so that he could be prepared because he hasn't really played magic in like two years. Right. So, you know, he, he had to start somewhere and he would prefer that it was early. So Rakdos is where he started. That's not where he is now, but you know, in, in his eyes, he, he still has wild cards to burn. So mm. I was like, well, what about this deck? And he was like, no, like deck is garbage. Play against it. It, it always looks bad. And then 10 minutes later, he's like, yeah, I crafted and I'm, I'm never losing. Um, <laughs> so I'm just like, ah, oh, God. All right. Anyway, I think what you're saying about there not being like a, a set metagame was true maybe a couple weeks ago, but I think it's fairly solid now in that Explorer and Pioneer kind of have the same problems. Again, stuff that I've talked about before where, People just find like the most messed up thing that they can possibly do that's on one end of the spectrum. And the format basically revolves around those decks. And Pioneer was like that for a while. And people eventually figured out ways where they could succeed with things like midrange or whatever. And I think Explorer is kind of getting to that point, but it still has a lot of the same problems. So I'm going to run down the problems for you. Love to hear problems. Luca and Indomitable Creativity are legal. Mm. And a lot of good token makers. Careful, careful something. The Neo card that cycles to make an elf. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know the name either, but definitely uh, a card that I had an eye on. Yeah, I I keep wanting to say careful consideration, but I know that card. That card is a blue card. Yep. But it, yep. it's careful something. It's like that thing channels to make an elf. There's Courier's Briefcase, which is awesome because it also just enables turn three transmog which is great yep. very scary. and so the luca decks have mostly settled into like a gruel shell occasionally with some splashes and then they just do titan of industry stuff because titan of industry beats up on a lot of things that exist in the format so previously agent of treachery but this deck, if, if it's just like, well, I'm, I'm only like transmogging once, like is an agent of treachery actually going to win me the game? Probably not. Like you probably need the like creativity for two or three in mm. order for that to be that good, right? So there are Jeskai creativity decks that use agent. And then there are green red X, Luca Titan decks. 
So those well, kind what of are they, what are they doing with the the middle of their plan? Are are they like solidly mid range and you know just just good gruel threats in the mid game and then simultaneously threatening this Titan of Industry end game? Well, you can't really do threats, right? Because it messes up with like Transmog and Luca. Right. So you have some amount of removal, fire prophecy, like, you know, puts a Titan back into your deck, or you can play a braid or Volted Surge because you have some random treasures. Mm. Fable the Mirror Breaker is just the card for yep. these decks because, like, I, I guess that's what you're literal about, everything. Like, yeah. yeah Mid range threat, right? Yep. Get, gets a thing, accelerates you, filters through your medium cards, finds you more combo pieces, whatever. And then Luca, and then you can just cast the Titan. You know, I, I love when when these decks are presenting multiple game plans. Like when, when they go all in on just like, I make this thing. What are you going to do about it? I'm like, kill it. Good game. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm glad I'll, you... I'll figure it out. I'll find the rest in peace or whatever yep. sideboard hammer. Yeah, that's what I always hated about the creativity decks that were just like putting Sarah's Emissary into play or something like that. It's like, eventually, like this, this works sometimes. It's not going to work all the time. And this is all you do. You don't have anything else to offer. So hearing that they've moved to, uh, you know, not necessarily a split game plan, but a a little bit more versatility, Fable of the Mirror Breaker, just doing all the things has to be a huge get for them. Uh, This deck sounds like it would actually be right up my alley. Like, I really like this play style. It's it's pretty nice. And then some of the decks are splashing for like Thoughtseize or slightly better removal in Fatal Push and stuff. And you can definitely do that and get away with it. And I think that that's pretty easy. It just all depends on what kind of problems you're trying to solve. And then mm-hmm. I'm assuming Jeskai some decks probably also go to blue as well that are trying to get like counter spells and interact with metagame that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you think that mystical dispute or negate or disdainful stroke is like the better disruption card, then you can absolutely do that. So what happens when you find a good two color shell is you get to just get the disruption that you feel like you need. Yeah. The Jeskai decks are a little stranger because like for, for the gruel decks, there were a couple people that were like, I am doing really well on ladder. And then like that deck gets copied because it was relatively new, but like for the Jeskai decks, there have been so many iterations in so many different formats uh, over just, you know, the past few years that people haven't really solidified on the single best list. Like some of them still have fires of invention, which mm-hmm. I think is really powerful. Um, but I think that most people have moved away from, and that's also true of like the green red decks where, a lot of them, I think, started with fires, and then we're just like, no, nah, I can just cut this. It's fine. So the Jeskai decks are weird. Uh, some of them are a little bit more all in on the combo. Some of them are a little bit more controlling and are playing kind of like a half and half. And then you'll see like the occasional fires decks. And then it's like, do you play Urian or not? Or mm-hmm. any sort of companion, whatever. And it's it's all kind of split. So it's really hard to narrow those down. But they're all kind of trying to do the same thing. Right. Right. That makes sense. The other part of the messed up spectrum is Greasefang. Yeah. So, yeah. so this, is, this is a deck that I think just gets better and better as time goes on. The, the Greasefang builds I'm seeing now are like night and day from the original ones. Yes. So Brian, who worked on Neo, what the hell, man? You miss Greasefang Parhelion in specifically Pioneer? What the hell? Yup. J- just yup. I, I didn't think about that. I mean, I, I can't tell you whether that was something that was being discussed internally, but it didn't even cross my mind. Not for a second. Yeah, I think. Sorry. Cards, cards like Parhelion is like they're they're there and they exist. And if I'm drafting the format, I'm like mad because I see it occasionally or I open it in my sealed deck or whatever. And maybe the format's too fast for it to be a playable card. And, and then after that, I just 
purged it from my memory. It's like yeah. it never existed. You know, it's it's weird. I, I probably did uh, one of the things where in like a card like Grease Fang exists and you're trying to validate it. I, I do just a ton of gatherer searches. Yeah. Well, let's be real. Scryfall searches and figure out exactly what this is doing. So it, it wouldn't shock me if at some point I was like, oh, you could do this. But did it register as like, oh, this is going to be one of the biggest threats in Pioneer? I don't think so. And, and it wasn't in fairness. Like it, it just... It was weird. It was there, but until it really got these new pieces that solidified its game plan, I I don't think it was much of a threat. Now I do very much think it's a threat. Yeah, I, because even at the time, I know that when we're doing previews for the set and like t- talking about Fable of the Mirror Breaker, right? It was just mm-hmm. like this does a lot of stuff, but like yeah. where does it go? And the answer was everywhere, and also in other formats. But I, I don't get the feeling that you had that opinion also while like working on dev for the set. Nope. And generally, I, I didn't hone in on the idea of the sagas being individually powerful because I thought they were broadly powerful. And once you decided to take the risk on the sagas, I, I think like this was always going to be the end result. Was it going to be Fable of the Mirror Breaker? I, I didn't really even think about that. It's just it was going to be something. Something was going right. to be good enough yeah. and generate too much value. You know, could Fable of the Mirror Breaker have been taken down a notch? Probably, but also at the same time, while it has become ubiquitous, it's become playable across multiple formats. I don't think it's ruined format. Like it's not like an Omnath or like an Oko or like that style card. It's just it's, it's very not even good. A no, you know? it's just it's just very good and like in a bunch of places and like maybe maybe actually inspiring the type of magic you want to inspire so that that's why like when i was looking for things i wasn't looking for cards like good cards are allowed that's completely fine and fable yeah. of the mirror breaker being good is acceptable the only risk i saw with that card was systemic and in, in putting more uh you know quasi adventures into the format not really an individual risk right and i mean we we both felt that way and made it a point to talk about basically all of the sagas because it was like, all right, you know, how much value does this thing give you? And mm-hmm. A lot of them have shown up, maybe not in huge numbers, mostly because just like the the color doesn't really support it all that well or the format isn't conducive to it or there are just like better things to be doing. But like Fable is definitely the one that, that sticks out, right? And then once you get that in the mix with Grease Fang and it's like, okay, well now you kind of have this backup plan. You're not pigeonholed mm-hmm. into being all in on the combo. If you're the Mardu version, uh, the Esper version is a little bit different, but Mardu does have this weird kind of like, I'm just going to attack you with like blood tithe harvester and my goblin token backup plan, which is not great, but it's something. Yeah. It, it, it can be threatening. Like I, I don't think it is going to win many games, but does it change behavior in games? I think the answer to that is absolutely. And that's just as critical. Whenever you play these like half combo, half mid range decks, it's, it's, it's not that you necessarily have to win with your mid range plan. It's just that it needs to get some consideration, get some resources from your opponent. And when it does that, it opens the door for your big finisher. So. Right. It's it's the Splinter Twin thing where it's like, well, eventually they're going to have to like kill your goblin or kill your reflection of Kiki Jiki or whatever. And then, you know, maybe your Grease Fang that you draw sticks. Yeah. That, sometimes that's all you need is a lightning rod. Yep. And for Esper, a little bit more all in. Uh, a lot of drawn discard type of stuff because you basically need to find both Grease Fang and Parhelion, which is not that easy. And that 
takes up a lot of deck slots. You don't have a lot of space left for other stuff. I've seen some lists that are playing the white black Soren that has like minus X reanimate and X mana value thing and yep. Kaito and some were playing like Elspeth resplendent. And it's like, I think that, yes, I guess that's a backup plan, but it's, it's pretty bad. And if you're trying to do Esper stuff, I would just stick just to go the combo. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I think Esper has the tools to make that solid in general. I think you know where my affinities lie. I, I love split game plans. I love offering multiple threats. So in general, I do like the Mardu builds a little bit better. But but the Esper stuff is acceptable as well. I just think you like you need to identify the metagame a little bit more, find some softness to the Parhelion combo, and then you can really benefit from going all in with Esper. Yep. Other end of the spectrum, sacrifice decks, cat oven, either Ooh. trail or oni cult anvil. All Ooh. things that are very difficult to deal with. Boo. Yes, absolutely yeah, boo. I, I just don't, I, I don't know. I've, I've said this for a while now. I, d- I don't know what games Cat Oven makes better. I'm, None. I, I never want to play with it. I never want to play against it. It's just a mistake. And if if you gave me the keys to the Castle Vantress, I would just get rid of it all over the place. So, Yep. Just uh, unprint Eldraine. I think it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could get rid of all of it. I don't, problem, I don't think anything I'd really miss. Problem with sacrifice decks is that they're a little small ball. It's like hard to deal with, but they have a, a pretty like long clock, right? What's the opposite of a short clock? A big clock? <laughs> that's that's not even true. Um, no. It kills on like turn seven. Anemic, a pretty anemic clock. Yeah, yeah. So... Things like Luca into a Titan of Industry. I mean, that'll beat you a lot of the time. It's it's really hard to overcome that because Titan kills you quick and, you know, gains some life and has trample and everything. So it's tough to block with Cat. Uh, so yeah. they're kind of in a tough spot. They can play a bunch of spot removal stuff to maybe disrupt the combo. Usually you get to disrupt it like once, but they're they're all transmogrifies and in lucas and like i said eventually they can just hard cast the titan too so i would much rather be on the lucas side of that matchup for uh jess guy maybe it's a little bit different but again they have the option to creativity for like three which makes things tough but then they have agent which still might not beat you if you have like a cat and an oven and a devil and an anvil you know you have a lot of stuff going on they can't take it all right so yeah I- I want to jump you forward to something that I expect like you you are definitely going to talk about. But okay. W- w- what do you think we talked earlier about like the cheap deck, the thing that gets people in and let them lets them participate if they aren't dedicated explorer players. What do you think that is offhand? I mean from from Josh's experience it was sacrifice. I don't know if that holds true if you didn't also have the pathways from standard or whatever. Okay. Uh there might be something cheaper, but I do feel like almost all of these decks are like half rares. So I like even, even mono red is just like a lot of the cards are rares depending on what version you play, I guess. Okay. Well, one of the things I was going to posit was like, I expect the cheap thing to be like fairly creature combat centric, just for whatever reason, it tends to work out that way. Right. Um, obviously that's the scenario in which cat up and shines. So if that's there, true. If there is like something for this deck to exploit in the new metagame, it might just be people who are finding their way to the format. Of course, if this is just the cheap deck, that sort of throws that into a tailspin and uh, maybe just makes it a flat-out bad choice, despite all my frustrations with the combination here. Yeah, I mean, well, Sacrifice, regardless, is 
still pretty cheap, even compared to the aggro decks, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of wildcard economy. So, and you can also make concessions around that too. Like I said, don't play Takanuma, don't play Sakenzin, it's fine. Yep. But if you have some of the modern red cards from formats past or some of the angel stuff, not all, but yeah, there, there, there have definitely been games watching Josh play with sacrifice where it's like, Oh, opponents playing mono red. Well, this is going to be close, but ultimately I'm going to win. Right. And same thing with like mono blue spirits, but then there are decks like angels or even just like a more all in green, white life gain deck that somehow people are playing but doesn't seem to win very much, just like a Johnny's Pride Mates and Soul Wardens and whatnot, yep. where it's just a terrible matchup for Sacrifice. So like that that's where the randomness aspect of it comes into play, and it, it just starts seeming like maybe this is a bad choice. But I do think that there is commonality between Grease Fang and the Transmogrify or Creativity decks, where like spot removal, instant speed spot removal especially, is still pretty good because there's the creature decks in the format, and then there are the combo decks that rely on creatures, as long as your instant speed card is, like, ideally one mana and can kill Grease Fang, which is... Mm. Fatal it's, push? It, like, yeah, push does it sometimes, but we don't have fetches, right? It's like Fable Pass. Yeah, but when, when you have Cat Oven, it's like... If, if, you, if you have Cat Oven, it's it's a lot easier. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, or Treasure from your Goblin Token, or whatever, yeah. you know? Like there, there are ways to make it happen. But uh, I think if I were to play Sacrifice, I would play just like a little bit more spot removal. And then that also kind of shores you up against sword and deck. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, and then fight rigging is another one that is not great, but is pretty frustrating to play against. Very cool idea. I, like as, as soon as I saw these decks, I got uh, immediately excited. Wh why are they not great? Do they just not line up well with like basically Titan of industry and grease fang parhelion going larger than what they can do despite it being fairly large. Right, and it's relatively inconsistent too. Like you only mm -hmm. have the fight riggings, and I mean your backup plan is turn two, rotting regisaur, or shakedown heavy, or whatever, which is not bad. But not bad. Then your thing that's both like a secondary combo piece and a good thing to hit off fight rigging is the great henge, which I think normally is not a card that you would try and play in this format because it doesn't really line up well against anyone. So yeah, again, like talking about cat oven, picking up some spot removal, it, it seems like the underbelly of this deck cat oven is particularly well set up to deal with. And then if you just have some spot, spot removal for the Titan of industry for the great henge, you're in a pretty good position against them. So, yeah, but it is really tough to kill those cards. I mean, by, by spot removal, I'm talking like, you know, voltage surge on top of fatal push, not playing Kologon's command, bedevil type of stuff. Yeah, yeah the Titan might fair. also just end up with a shield, so you might be screwed anyway. Mm, that is that is true. Fair point. Yeah, depending on what they need to do, it's it's not that uncommon for them to have to like gain life and make a four four, and then like okay, you kill the seven seven. Now they have a four four that they can just transmog the next turn and run it back. So yeah, Luca also like having five loyalty and just getting to do it twice works it, really nice. Yeah, with Titan. yeah, for sure. So the things that I'm hearing from Josh were basically like a lot of my good matchups are disappearing. I'm not seeing a lot of aggro decks. It's like a lot of combo and a lot of control because control is actually decent. Uh, like March of otherworldly light is 
a removal spell that that can be cheap. And when you're talking about like, well, I just need to kill this Grease Fang and then their whole plan falls apart. Like you don't care about pitching it to Fairy or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And then actually get to play some reasonable counter spells. So I, I think that blue-white control is solid. And I know that people are still messing around with like Torrential Gear Hulk stuff and I don't know, whatever. I, I think that that sort of end game kind of like doesn't beat anyone because even just the creature combo decks like go over the top of you. So I would not be messing with it. I would just be like full, full control, like Brian Gottlieb, like we're just, we're just a fairy talking. That's it. Yeah. Like no, oh, like wow. a, a castle Vantress or a castle Arnvale, the good one, man. I'm, I'm having a good time working down here, but when you tell me there's like a viable to fairy control deck that just doesn't even want to win the game, I, I might have to quit so I can get in some reps in this format. Yeah. The thing is, is like dream trawler might just be good enough against most things to play main deck but you don't have to you don't have to man it's fine disappointing well uh regardless of what i'm supposed to do i i will just sit there uh win with teferi i mean not for very long i'll, I'll play one game and be like oh, okay i did it i i've yep. got my kicks in and then i will walk away and that, that's a real decision when you're playing on arena because you i don't know you can't kind of like just give your opponent the look like hey uh we're done here do you want to do you want to try and win the second game or do you want to sit here uh, for all 50 minutes. And then they hear you and they just start roping. Mm. <laughs> they, they just go AFK. They're like, ah, time to make a sandwich or whatever. Yep. And then you just concede because it's a ladder game and you're in silver. So who cares? <laughs> that is, that is, exa- you have perfectly forecasted what my experience is going to be actually. <laughs> Dude, we've lived the same experience. Yes. That's the only reason I know. Yep. Uh, the funny thing about this is when Explorer started, the first deck I built was Phoenix. Yeah, and just not not in the mix anymore. I mean, it's it's okay, but it's not doing anything particularly well. It has a bunch of spot removal that you could play, which is cool. Uh, a lot of it is sorcery speed, but you could get away from that if you wanted to. If you wanted to play like Lightning Axe and mm-hmm. Flame Bless Bolt and not play Strangle, you could absolutely do that, and I think that that would be fine. But yeah, no... No DRC or or thing in the ice or anything from like Pioneer and Historic. You have Ledger Shredder, which is cool. Your Expressive Iterations just got banned, which is kind of a feel bad. Yeah, but big hit. but yeah, again, like the clock is just like a little bit slow, so you can disrupt them a little bit, and then they're gonna start doing this stuff that is, you know, four mana for a seven drop or whatever. They're they're basically just like cheating things into play, and you're like casting Crackling Drake or whatever. It's just not not great. Yeah, it feels like we're supposed to wait for a thing in the ice, basically. I, that is such a good catch-up mechanism against all these strategies. It actually gives you reasonable outs to play towards. And like also a, a clock, like it increases your clock for sure. So while Ledger Shredder is great, I think some aspects of the Phoenix archetype are just sort of indispensable. And thing in the ice stands out as one, at least in the Pioneer format. So listening to what Josh was saying about what the metagame looks now made me think about the stuff that we were talking about before and the stuff that I've said in the past where it's like the PTQ metagame is going to be completely different than what you've seen in the last week, you know, or like mm-hmm. the days leading up to the tournament or whatever. So I don't know then like how to gauge things or what advice to give really. I mean, like the best advice is like pick a really messed up thing to do and just work on it. And just try try to have game against most things. Try to have plans against things. 
hedge where you can. If there is a matchup that you feel is pretty close to unlosable, then that's fine. Whatever. Just, you know, like scoop that matchup. Don't necessarily devote the eight cards or whatever you think you would need to beat it and Mm. just move on. But if you wanted to just work on Mardu Greasefang, I think you could absolutely do that. I think that probably moving to more of a mid-range plan might be better because I think a lot of the thought seizes and spot removal stuff just like line up pretty well against what the format's doing anyway. And then you get to get away from pretty mopey cards like Stitcher Supplier that I don't even think should be in the deck in the first place. Cool. All right. So, so you don't want to give advice, which is fine. I, I, no, respect I mean, that. I, I can give advice. My confidence level is just low. Yeah. yeah. So, so what I was going to say is that like, knowing when you don't have like the correct answer, I think is valuable as a content creator. Cause you can say, I, I don't have the correct answer. You know, don't just blindly copy this, do your thing, which you have now done. But at the same time, people want to know what you are going to play. Like what is, where does that leave you ultimately? And I know you're not trying to save any information. So tell us what you're going to play. Well, there's, there's one last deck to discuss that I think okay. is pretty good. Good. And that's Rectus Midrange with one of our most hated cards, which is Graveyard Trespasser. Oh, no. Oh, no. You're you're a Graveyard Trespasser, truther. I leave for New Zealand for one week, and I come back, no, no, and you're no, no, all no. about okay. Graveyard Trespasser. Okay. Let, me, let me just say that it's actually not bad in the context of the format. That said, I'm not sure if my list would include it or not. Okay. But spot removal, Thoughtseize, reasonable threats, not going like super small ball with Young Pyromancer, Doing so what are like we Shrug- what are we talking beyond Graveyard Trespasser as far as threats go? Uh, Fable, Chandra, Soren, some Croxes. Okay. Yep. Bone Crusher Giant is great, and you. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You could play Arcanist if you want. I think that's like a, a little bit too small, bally. But like Blood Tithe Harvester obviously plays both roles pretty well. So yeah, I think it's mostly Blood Tithe, Bone Crusher, and then people have the the Trespassers and Fables. Seems like a good solid base for sure. I think Bone Crusher Giant, given everything you have described thus far in the format, Bone Crusher Giant seems just great. Yeah, it doesn't kill Grease Fang, but hopefully your other stuff makes up for that. Right. But I, maybe that means that you don't play four. You know, maybe you play like three copies or something. I think that's completely reasonable. But man, ad- adventures and sagas in the same deck talk about just getting the most <laughs> out of your cards. Weird. Weird, yeah. right? And and planeswalkers. So I I'm fine. We're playing Rakdos, things I will caution against is that I think people are really used to like the standard mana bases where you have all shock lands and basics and like your Dragon Skull Summit's always ETB untapped and whatnot. So you see these these lists with like a bunch of summits and like Castle Locked Wayne and I love Castle Locked Wayne, right? Mm, like too. that that would be basically my win condition if if I could do it in in any deck, right? Where it's just like you just grind them out and then lock the them to death. But like in this deck, I honestly might not even play it because of how wildly inconsistent it is. And then you also need to take a hard, hard look at your Takanuma or any Sakensins you're playing. And it's just like, is this actually better than a basic swamp? Because it's not free anymore. That's really interesting. You know, one of the good signs, I think, of uh, great deck builders restraint, like just because you can do these things, you have to ask yourself, is it actually correct to? And one of the hardest swaps to make in all of magic is like basic <laughs> land for anything. And it, right. it's just like yeah. a, a very like disciplined swap that shows usually a very good understanding of the format. Or land in the sideboard too. In a lot yeah, of that's places. another one. Yep. 
Uh, I kind of learned this the hard way, honestly. I built this this Bant Blink deck when everyone was playing like Jeskai Blink. They're like blinking uh, Avalanche Riders. And it's like, okay, that that's cute. But like, if you just blink Mystic Snake, you win the game, right? Like people, Not bad. people just yep. can't play Magic anymore. You're talking about playing against like Solar Flare, just like these clunky Kakusho decks. Yeah, and I remember the format well. Uh, I was a solar flare player until I remembered uh, just not winning anymore. Right. <laughs> because people didn't let you do the six mana sorcery thing. Yeah, and the solar flare love playing the Karoos, the bounce lands to yep. fuel compulsive research and get to six mana. And they worked really well with signets and everything. And uh, for that nationals, I convinced Cedric Phillips to just cut his Karoos because he was just going to get obliterated by the blink decks because they had things like Venser and Rif- Riffle and Cloudscape, you know? Mm-hmm. So. I was I was on top of stuff mostly. Uh, comes down to me playing for top eight against a Rakdos aggro deck where I'm Wall of Roots Tarmogoyf and can blink life gain cards. You know, it's like pretty good matchup all things considered. And I, I like they have Magus of the Moon in their sideboard, right? Which is pretty tough because I'm I have a lot of green and I have Wall of Roots, so I can make green mana. That's not that big of a deal, but the majority of my mana base was like Shocklands and then Flagstones of Trocare because I have Edge mm. of Autumn because I didn't have many ways to put cards in the graveyard. So like I could either ramp with Edge into Snake or Venser or I could cycle Edge off Flagstones to pump my Tarmogoyf. And only played three Tarmogoyfs because that's how hard it was to get cards in the graveyard, right? Mm. Uh, but yeah, they, they had Sideboard Magus of the Moon. It was really good against me. I had serrated arrows in my sideboard to kill the Magus of the Moon. So I thought maybe not a big deal. And because my very boisterous, very loud roommate, Gabe Walls at the time was running around telling everyone how like busted our deck was. And someone was like, oh, you just get Magus of the Moon. He's like, we have four serrated arrows, idiot. Uh, <laughs> Antonio DeRosa playing for top eight. Uh, against me, played Megas the Moon, I played Arrows, and he Shattering Spreed it. Mm. Yep, that'll just, do it. Just brought in Shattering Spree against my deck with no main deck targets because Gabe told him I had Arrows. And the thing I learned was that the the two Yavamaya Coasts I had in my mana base to like solidify my color requirements or whatever, it was just like completely unnecessary. And if if it was like, you know, Basic Island, Basic Plains or whatever, it's like I, I'm pretty sure I just win the match pretty easily. Yep. So, yeah, it, it's a stuff, tough lesson like to learn that. for sure. Stuff like that. You don't always have to play non-basics just because they're available. And, you know, things like Pioneer, obviously they have a, a lot of really good options for you. in if you want to like fix your mana or whatever, but it's like Haunted Ridge, Dragon Skull Summit, Castle Lockthwain, they all have costs. And Takanuma does too, because some of your other cards are keying off of basic lands. So it does matter. And you do have to think about that stuff and, I can already like look at a deck list and just be like, this person probably did not put that much thought into it mm-hmm. or is not paying attention to the amount of games that they lose because of it. And you and I kind of have an ongoing thing with this. Maybe it's just like me sending you things and then you indulging me and you don't really care. But uh, all the Phoenix decks playing for Stormcarve goes just like automatically. Yeah, my favorite response is no way to prevent this. There's nothing yeah. you could have done as as people lose game after game because their <laughs> their codes come into play tapped. Uh, I mean, especially in historic where you have like DRC and they're playing 
uh, the symmetry sage, the like magecraft, make a thing a three, three or whatever. Mm -hmm. it's like, you have all these one mana cards, right? And you have Shocklands and, and pathways and spire bluff canals in, in historic and everything. And it's just like, you have so many ways to just fix your mana on turn one that four storm carve coast is kind of ridiculous. Uh, people were doing the same thing with Sulphur Falls when that was out. It was like, yeah, we'll just play four Sulphur Falls and like two basics. And it's like, that thing is never going to eat to be untapped, right? You can just cut yeah. two. You still have completely adequate mana sources. And yeah, just watching like the last pro tour playing historic, like uh, there's a feature match where person had four Storm Carve Coast in their deck, had it on turn one, lost the the mirror match because of it because they weren't able to play magic on turn one and it's just like come on just like tighten up fix fix your mana base a little bit oh like like we said one of the hardest shifts to make it it is not always patently obvious but uh after some deep thought you can often find it and the fact that those are the type of adjustments you're making to your deck at this point tells me that you have definitely uh put in the work on this format and understand it well I'm I'm in there, you know. I kind of know what's going on, but yeah. it, it's so also I assume you'll you'll have like a deck list for our our lovely patrons uh, over in our Discord, right? I mean, right, I have a lot of different. Right, of, Gerald. I have a lot of different deck lists, and then I think it's up to you to choose. What you okay, want. that that's fair. I think that's a fine approach. Just you know, these are all viable options. Yeah. Use what you'd so, like. I was I was like smart enough in 2009 or whenever this nationals was to. Be like, all right, Cedric, you need to cut your cruise. You know, like, I, I just need you to do this. Like, cut your cruise, add a 26 land or whatever. And uh, Cedric also lost playing for top eight, by the way. Mm. He he went pretty deep and loved Solar Flare as a result of that tournament and a few tournaments surrounding it. Um, and it, it's like not a very Cedric deck, right? It's like black-white mid-range, effectively. Uh, although I guess he did play black-white mid-range when I was playing green-white tokens, which also kind of weirded me out. But anyway, I was pretty smart back then. And I thought that the Serrated Arrows had me covered, and it mostly did, if not for Blabbermouth Roommate, but I, I could have been better, and I, I learned something that day. Like, it hit me hard, right? And I think that I know more stuff now as a result of that. I don't think that I'm perfect. I'm still learning stuff all the time, right? But, like, this is one of those things that I just see constantly that I, I want people to be more mindful of and just encourage them like gentle helpful nudge towards you know thinking about your mana base a little bit and i think the cop out for a lot of people it's like ah mana bases are hard like i'll just copy one or whatever but it's like learn to do it what if i gave you a new catchphrase we know what? my catchphrase if it's free it's me and i i would like to pass on a catchphrase to you and it is perfect mana bases are not perfect it's deep it sounds like it's a contradiction, but you actually dig into it. And the idea the, of having these these perfect, you know, you play all your storm carve ghosts. So things yeah, are 20, yep. 20 dual lands. Yep. Wow. Per perfect mana bases are not perfect. Uh the the way I referred to it was my mana was too good at that nationals. Yeah. So yep. very much the same thing. It's like, did I need the 19th and 21st? blue or green source from the Avamaya coast. No, no, I didn't. Also taking damage kind of sucks, right? Like yeah, what the hell was out? Doing? That's what the game's about. Yeah. I don't know. I, th I think maybe I just had like one game where I 
couldn't cast a Vincer or something, but it's <laughs> like, like, it, it would have been an this, island. Here come the Avamikos. Yeah, it would have been an island, man. What the hell? I think Rakdos is fine. I think that blue eye control is fine if that's what you want to do. I am not the person to get a list from that for, from whatever. Nasif has been streaming it. You can definitely check him out. Uh, I think Carmen posted a list. Marty Greasefang is good. I would get rid of Stitcher Supplier. And just recognize that you are not going to combo on turn three every game. Like that is not necessarily your plan. You're playing Marty midrange that happens to have a combo. And you're blessed uh, to do so, by the way. One of the best right. positions you could be in. Yeah. And it yeah, it makes people sideboard all wonky against you, you know? They're gonna load up on like hearse and rest in pieces and stuff, and hopefully you're just not using your graveyard anymore. You just don't care. And then if what Josh is saying is true, and the metagame does actually resemble kind of what people are doing on ladder, then I think Spirits is actually a good choice. Like if there's not a lot of aggro and the counter spells are pretty good. Okay, you know, the reaction to the combo decks is playing control. Okay, play spirits. Like, it honestly sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, this is sort of like the Mystic Snake deck, right? Like, people are trying to do these very specific things, and you just disrupt them very well while you present a good clock. Yeah, I won't say the clock is good, <laughs> but but it is a clock. A, a clock? A clock? It is, it, is, it is a clock, and it's pretty similar to the problems that Sacrifice and you know, like angels and Phoenix all kind of have where it's like, they're, they're gold fishing at a solid turn six, turn seven. Right. But they have the disruption to back it up and they have yeah. curious obsession to keep drawing cards. And you actually have a lot of good sideboard options now, which you didn't before. So between ether gust, mystical dispute, whatever uh, witness protection, if you yeah. want that, you, yep. you have answers to, to kind of everything. And it does feel like you have access to an actual sideboard now, whereas you didn't before. Yeah, a lot of like very innocuous cards have come into the mix as as good blue sideboard options. So not shocked to see Spirits pick up some metagame percentage that way. And if, if you just want to pick a deck and, and jam, I think you could stick with the normal Mardu Greasefang deck. I think you just jam that. You could do Esper if you want to full-on combo. I would full-on combo. Do not play the Mopey Planeswalkers. Uh, you, you have Ledger Shredder as a backup plan. That is fine. And then you can sideboard in something else. If you want to, you know, blue eye control is fine. Mono red is fine. Gruel, Luca, Tyrant decks are also fine. Like everything is kind of okay. It just depends on what you feel like you're going to play against. And I think that that's really hard to pin down. Is that exciting? Like as someone who is preparing for this tournament, is this kind of openness something that has you jazzed up about playing it? Or is it just like a little frustrating where you can't really find a foothold? I like it when... There are go-to answers for things, but the problem with Pioneer and Explorer by extension is that it's severely missing a lot of those aspects where the reason that, I don't know, like polymorphing things is viable is that there's just not a ton of disruption and removal and like the top end stuff is good and people's clocks are slow and it's like, you know, a format like modern, it's like you have natural checks to kind of keep that stuff in place whereas pioneer and explorer are very much just about finding the most messed up thing that you can do and bonus points if it's a thing that people aren't very good at interacting with currently yeah we're looking uh for a hero to kind of boss around the format a little bit i'm, I'm pretty confident it's going to be monastery swift spear once that arrives I, I think that's actually the missing piece that'll glue a lot of things together 
Um, but until then, you may as well have your fun and just go off, do the most busted thing possible. Yeah, Mono Red's definitely lacking. The fact that for the longest time, they were like, oh, I guess we have to play like Torbrand Embercleave because a lot of, of the other cards just aren't here. And that is a combination that I think was a little bit overpowered for standard compared to what we're used to, but is definitely underpowered in a format like this. I would agree. And the decks that you see now are just like, I'm playing Wizards Lightning with like four Wizards because I need instant speed removal for Grease Fang. But it's like, you just cut the top end, you play a bunch of burn spells, and that is a better plan. And I like that list more, but I still, I don't think it's good. And I think that it is missing some stuff, but mono red diehards, you can absolutely do it. Like, is Sandy Dog going to qualify? Probably. Mm, that's always a good bet. Uh, what else you got for me, man? Any other questions? Any any things that you were thinking of for Explorer where you're like, hey, why isn't my favorite deck playable or whatever? Well, I, you know, I, I've heard some buzz around Angels. Is that is that just false hype? Angels is good and solid in a vacuum, not great in the context of the format. Yeah. Like you have access to some copies of March, which gives you some instant speed removal. But for the most part, you have a pretty slow goldfish and the stuff that you're doing doesn't line up all that well. Like the, the polymorph decks mostly beat you, especially uh, Asian and treasury ones. You can, if you know, you're left alone and get to 50 life and have a bunch of Valkyries, like obviously Titan of industry is not going to do much. So the gruel matchup is a little bit better than Jeskai. And, occasionally you can go bigger than Grease Fang, which is pretty cool and interesting, but it's mm. really hard to do if they have the combo on turn three. I think it's pretty reasonably doable if they only combo you on turn four. So you have that aspect. The The problem is, is like you're really good against aggro, right? You have like one fours and life gain and, and, and big blockers and whatnot. And, and you have not mentioned an aggro deck in today's Yeah, discussion. I mean... Mono red, there was like some gruel, like some humans, mono black when the format first started or whatever, good against Phoenix. But like these these decks just mostly don't exist because of things like Grease Fang. So is Angels actually what you're supposed to be doing? I don't think so. Like you can jam it in best of one and hope to get your good matchups and that can absolutely happen, right? But in a, like a two-day tournament uh, with some best of three or whatever, it's just not, not necessarily where I'd want to be. One more question. I will tell you that I don't really care about the answer to this, but people always like this question. They like to know uh, how to fix things. So if you could add any one card to this format to kind of like either solve the problems or just like smooth things out a little bit, is there something that is a glaring weakness right now for you that could just be fixed if there was only this one card in the mix? Good one drop to pressure would be nice. So Swiss Spear definitely checks a lot of boxes. I think that that puts a different constraint on the format that then that people need to be aware of and prepare for things like, you know, consider into faithful mending, uh, probably shocking twice in between there. Like obviously you're gaining some life back or whatever, but you know you're you're down some points and then like grease fanging them. A good mono red deck could just have you like dead on board on, yeah. on next turn, right? So yeah. I think Swiss Spear goes a long way towards making things like Grease Fang less viable, which would then make the format a little bit better. And that is this is basically what it takes. Like we have Thoughtseize, which is interesting because it's it's like not in 
uh, like a, a standard set or whatever, right? But like since it was put into historic, then it is legal in Explorer because it's it's there. So like might as well. It's like very strange, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird uh, that like the first thing you do when you announce this format isn't just like make the 20 staples and sell it as an anthology and just take your guaranteed money from everyone. Right. And even if it's not immediately, I mean, you might as well do it pretty soon, right? I would I would would have hoped that it would be out by now. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what it takes to actually put a set into production on Arena, but it, it seems like it should be very doable to make the 20 most important cards very quickly. Yeah, I, really, I would think so too, you, but... Yeah, you, you have to say... Yeah, true, but I, I expect it's a financial choice. They think they can get more money by basically drip-feeding it and not just like fixing the format right away. Yeah, I could see that, but you even don't have to do 20, right? You can do like a normal historic anthology where it's like five good ones and 10 stinkers or something. Yeah, that that's so hard to like. Like, what story are you telling with that? Like, it's very, it's so clear what you're doing. I guess everything they do is so clear. So, like, why? It's it's all face why, up. Why take man. them? Yeah, why it's take the mask off up. now? Fair enough. Fair enough. And there hasn't been an anthology type of thing in a while. So, also, you think that they would have just released one at some point? I mean, now they have alchemy stuff, kind of slotting in as the in between sets sort of thing, but. You know? Yeah, how's how's that format doing? Did you see that tweet about the the player numbers? On- I did. I mean, that's that's the untapped user base, though, right? That's not all of Arena. And sure, what, what but it's got to be reflective people- of something, right? And also, like the idea of alchemy is that it's for the most enfranchised players that solve formats too quick and they need something new to play. So, who do you think is using trackers? I don't think that that's true. I think alchemy is like. Hearthstone, more fun, casual experience, like getting a story out of it. Sort of. Mm. I think it appeals to I, them too. I agree that they wanted Alchemy to be like a backup Pro Tour format or whatever for when that problem happens. But I like, especially when that's not going to be the PTQ format, then why are those people playing Alchemy? Like, it's just a, a bad idea. Then you're just not selling Alchemy cards for three fourths of the year. Yeah, you well. can, you can't cater just to that player base. I think or, alchemy or if you and, do, and you bad have to idea might be alchemy and bad idea might be somewhat intertwined. Forever, they are. So. They are. I think they are. But you know, neither here nor there. Anyway, yeah. Surprise! There's not an anthology. That's fine. At least it didn't drop like two days before the PTQ and like be mm, legal. True. Because true. That would suck. But you know, we're we're in it where we are. Uh, Swiss for yourself some problems. I don't know. Just like more. More interaction, more disruption, hopefully stuff that's like stapled onto creatures or plays well in a creature deck or, you know, better late game stuff. Maybe, you know, it's like if your Parhelion thing doesn't match up with what I'm doing on turn five, then why even bother doing it? Because you might only do your thing on turn four, like that kind of thing. Man, that's that's a real accelerated pace where you're like, I'm not saying it's good. Yeah, yeah. Just take the format as you find it. Sure. I don't know. For for Pioneer, I would want it to be like really bad combos and then like creature decks and control and mid-range. And I would ban the shit out of like Grease Fang and Lotus Field and anything that is like stepping out of line, you know? Yeah, I I think there's merit to being aggressive with the bans in that format. Um, and I, I think that would make for like a good format and would serve better as a place where like your old standard cards can go play versus Agreed. now where it's Agreed. like, well, your, your dual lands still have value, but certainly a lot of the stuff that you played in standard is outmoded. Yep. 
they, they need a strategy around banning. They need a stated strategy. And I, I think like, I don't know, I see Pioneer as a good testing ground to be thoughtful about your bands, not, not destroy people's decks, not absolutely crater cards value, but, you know, carefully approach things. And sometimes you go after a secondary card to bring a deck back in line. So it has to do a slightly worse option. And that's enough. Like, that's all you really have to do. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't like the line that they're taking, but we we definitely just have fundamental differences of what we want the format to look like where yeah. they're like, no, we actually like that, you know, dig and cruise are legal because it gives the format an identity. And I'm just like, God damn it. <laughs> I, I mean, like that statement. I appreciated that statement because at least it was clear in its goals. Yes, I liked like that it was in there. So now we're not left wondering, like, why the hell is this still here? Yeah, I, I think making those cards like format staples and the format being okay is a really, really big burden to bear where you could just like make a good format instead and just like get rid of all that shit and routinely purge the format of that shit and it would be way more interesting, but... Copter's, Copter's too good because it goes into a lot of decks and homogenizes them, but... Every every blue deck has a dig or a cruise, and you are incentivized to play blue because of dig and cruise in the same way that you'd be incentivized to play creatures because you have smuggler's copter. Like mm-hmm. I I'm honestly I I'd be fine if both were legal, right? But being like, oh, we like dig and cruise, but we don't like copter. Like I also don't really like that all that much. With you, one hundred percent. Format could use more creature decks, you know. Although yeah. maybe you just play Copter in your Grease Fang deck and it's like, what have I done? Mm, that is that is an unfortunate consequence probably <laughs> that we are headed towards. Fable, Fable the Mirror Breaker is like a three mana Copter anyway, so that's fine. Yeah, f- fair enough. It does everything. All right, man, I, I think that's it. I think, uh, you know, you can get ready to go to work, I guess, because right. it's like I, seven. Yeah, yeah, about to head off to the office. So uh, good on you, mate. And uh, we'll oh, talk dear. next week. All right. How, how do they say game in, in Kiwi land? Uh, all around the world, game is said exactly the same way. And that's game. Good luck.